Hi, this is Pastor Mike from Compass in Monterey County. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast. I hope it encourages you and gives you confidence that Jesus is by your side and that his plans for you are to bless you. Well, I know that many of you this morning feel like a human pinata because you've taken so many hits, so many bad things have happened in your life. There's a lot of hurt here this morning and a lot of hurt in this community. And we're wondering, will my life ever be better? It's been so long. I ministered to a woman who is in a messy divorce and she's asking that question. You know, it's bad enough for the love between two people to die for the dream of growing old together is gone. But it's quite another thing to go to meetings with attorneys and to argue and yell and to hear accusations and insults. Her bed is empty at night. She says her house is just deathly quiet. She's lonely. Will my life ever get better? When our only son became ill and committed suicide, we stood by his grave and watched his casket being lowered into the earth. Believe me, that was the question Susie and I were asking. I'm ministering to another person who is married and has a family but she can't escape her mother who still wants to control her life. Worse, her sisters and her brothers have very strong opinions about how she should live and are constantly advising her and criticizing her because she does not measure up to their expectations. It's suffocating. It causes tension and arguments. She tries to avoid really visiting the family because, well, because it's hard. And she wonders, will it ever be better in my family? My heart breaks because so many people in this church and community, and especially in Soledad and prisoners, are asking this question. Will my life ever get better? And that's why I'm speaking about Tamar today, because she's a big answer to how your life can get better. My bet is you've never heard a sermon about her in your life. In my research this last week, I was stunned to find that she's one of the type, top five people in the Bible that preachers never preach about. The reason is her life is just full of landmines. I mean, there's incest, there's sex outside of marriage, there's prostitution, deceit, two evil husbands, losers that God finally executes himself. She's a nightmare for a preacher. And yet she is a hero in the Bible. She is the hero of faith 
that you probably never heard of. Her life, without a doubt, was a mess. She married a man who was so evil, God finally kills him. She marries his brother, and he's just as bad, and God kills him. You think you have a bad husband? You should tell him about this passage. God may take his life if he doesn't shape up. I'm just kidding. And then there's his father, the father, Judah. <laughs> he decides Tamar's back, bad luck. Two of his sons died married to her. He has a third son, but he won't let her go near him. He sends her back to her father to live. So she's a widow and she's childless. And in the ancient world of 1200 BC, a widow was powerless. There was no way for her to earn money. And it's very hard for us 3,000 years later to really get into what was happening to this poor woman in that culture. Very different from our culture. Because in that culture, to be childless was a disgrace. Now, don't be judgmental. That's 3,000 years ago. But the main job of a woman was to produce an heir, a son, so that the family line could continue. That was all important. She was stuck in life because the men in her life had power over her and they were failing her. You know, it's one thing to have a bad week or a bad month, even a bad year. She had 30 bad years in a row. Think about that. Her hope tank only had vapors in it. And I'm sure there's some of us this morning who only have vapors in our hope tank. And she wondered, will my life ever be better? So as we look at his life, her life, remember she has stood in our shoes. And the first thing she would say to us is this, storms don't last forever. The rain eventually stops. Whether we realize it or not, the Bible is the record of God making surprise endings in hopeless lives. Sarah was barren in 90, Abraham 100 years old, but they did have a baby. Joseph is sold as a slave to the Egyptians, but he rises to second in command of Pharaoh. He becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt when he was once a slave. Goliath is challenged by David, the teenager. David goes to face Goliath with a slingshot and everybody closes their eyes. But David did kill Goliath. Just another surprise ending. Mary was unmarried and a virgin, but she did give birth to Jesus. How? Because the angel said, with God, nothing is impossible. I find so many people who use the word God apparently without any idea of what it could possibly mean. Nothing is impossible in your life. There can be surprise endings. 
So Jesus dies upon the cross. God had promised his son that he would raise him from the dead in three days. Jesus tells his disciples he will be raised from the dead in three days. But as he's hanging on the cross, dying, it's a test of faith of Jesus. Is God going to do the impossible? No one has risen from the dead. Is my father going to do the impossible? On the third day when Jesus walked out, there was a big smile on his face. God did it again. The biggest surprise ending in history. The resurrection. And if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, how can you not believe that God can do the impossible in your life? If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, how can you not believe in surprise endings in your life? God's answer to this question is Jeremiah 29, 11. I know my plans for you. They are for good and to give you a new future and a hope. We got to cling to that because whether or not we have hope or we are hopeless depends upon what we're focused on in our mind. And we must focus on the promise of God that he brings surprise endings over and over in people's lives. Tamar was a widow and childless. Her father was not standing up for her and her Judah, her father-in-law, was not doing his duty of providing financially for her. One day, Tamar took action. She had been passive for 30 years, letting the men in her life run her life. And finally, after they failed again and again, she hatched a plan. She took action on her own part. She gave material to God to bring a surprise ending in her life because the men sure weren't doing that. Sometimes you've got to do that. You just got to do something. This really is a passage for women with men who are failing them. Judah's wife dies. He's now a widow. She hears that he's traveling to shear sheep and she knows the route. She dresses like a prostitute. She's very attractive. You see her picture on a screen. She positions herself by the road. Her face is covered with a veil, but her attractiveness shows through. Tamar is beautiful. She is his daughter-in-law, but Judah does not recognize her. Remember, it's been almost 30 years since he, she has been in his home as a teenager. He propositions her. She asks what she, he will give her if she, she lets him come into her tent. He says a goat, but he doesn't have one. So she demands that he give her some collateral. And he asks what? And she says, your signet ring, which is your signature on your docusign, and your staff. 
And so he does. His lust is so big, he does give that to her. And the next day he sends a goat's payment to retrieve his things, but she's nowhere to be found. She's smarter than he is. Her plan works perfectly. She's pregnant with twins, not realizing it's Tamar that he paid for sex. He's furious and he demands that she be burned as punishment for polluting the family line. That's what he thought she did, sleeping with some guy. He's the biggest hypocrite in the Bible. He is in denial about what he's done until in a dramatic way, Tamar produces his stuff. And says, I am pregnant by the man to whom these belong. His moral blindness is cured. He admits what he's done is wrong. This is really a surprising turning point for him. He could have tried to cover it up, but he doesn't. He admits what he has done. And she gives birth to two sons who keep the tree family tree of Judah going because he has no male heirs. Now he does. So Tamar becomes a hero in the Bible because she risked her life in order to produce two sons that would keep the line of Judah going. And the Bible had prophesied that the Savior, the Messiah, would come from the family of Judah. But if Tamar had not stepped in, that prophecy could have never come true. There were no heirs. Turns out she's a hero because she had the courage to take the risk of being killed. She becomes the great-great-grandmother of Jesus, our Savior. She's no longer childless, no longer shamed by society. She's now part of Jesus's family tree and greatly honored in the Bible. <clears throat> Tamar is proof God's plans for you are bigger than your mistakes and your messes. Surely there's someone who needs to hear that. You've got deep regrets. You've got guilt from the past. Tamar should be your inspiration. Oswald Chambers, one of my favorite writers, and he wrote, our impossibilities are God's possibilities. Do you believe that? God's possibilities. So many people use the word God without any idea of what God can possibly mean. <clears throat> Don't dismiss that as positive thinking or pop psychology. I actually hear preachers do that to dismiss what the angel said. Nothing is impossible for God. That when preachers preach about that, oh, it's just pop psychology. No, it isn't. The angel didn't even know Norman Vincent Peale. He didn't know Robert Schuller. He just knew God. That's God. Nothing is impossible with God. Paul Harvey made a fortune telling us the rest of the story. 
Did you know a young artist was told he had no talent and he should find something else to do? You know what his name was? Walt Disney. Did you know that a young comedian was told that he's not funny? He had to support himself by selling pencils on the streets of New York. His name? Jerry Seinfeld. Max Lucado is one of the most popular Christian authors today. His first book was rejected by 133 publishers. And yet now he sells in the millions. Let me give you my absolute favorite verses if you are discouraged about your life getting better. The first is Psalm 56, verse 9. This I know, God is for me. God is for me. He's fighting for you. He's on your side. How can you stay discouraged if he's working for you? In Ephesians 3.20, I have it on my mirror. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine, to him be the glory. Far beyond all that you can imagine? In other words, you can't pray a prayer that is too big for God to do. That's an incredible promise. Tattoo that on your brain and cling to it. Faith is God-anointed imagination. Your life can get better, but you've got to saturate your mind with the Word of God and pray big prayers to a big God. The problem is so many of us have a negative imagination instead of a God-anointed imagination. Last week I said, uh, how do you know if you have a negative imagination? that it's not God anointed, that your imagination is not under the power of God. Well, it's fear. Fear is a dead giveaway. The most frequent command in the Bible is fear not. Do not fear, Joshua 1.6. Do not let your heart be afraid, John 14. Fear not for I am with you, Isaiah 41. For God did not give us fear, but power and love and self-control, 2 Timothy. 365 times God says, do not fear. It's a commandment in scripture. What does that mean? It means if we're fearful, we are disobeying a commandment of God. It is sin to fear. A lot of us don't realize that because it's such a fearful society we live in today. And so people are full of fear and they think it's just normal. If you knew what I faced, of course. No, we are commanded not to fear. I preached this before, but it didn't do any good. It's kind of discouraging for a preacher. Because I hear repeatedly people not taking risks and doing things. Why? They're afraid. Let me get real personal. When I was a junior at Stanford, I took a directed reading course from Michael Novak. He later became famous, he wasn't then. And the whole deal was I would read a book a week and write an essay of one or two pages about what I read. 
About the third week of this 10-week course, he handed my paper back and he said, you are not understanding what you're reading. You're not reading with understanding. These reflect that. And he said, from now on, after every chapter in a book, I want you to close the book, take a piece of paper, and write out what you just read. And if you can't do that, you need to read the chapter again. Because you read it, but didn't. Well, that's harder than you think. Put that piece of paper down the next week, and I got about two sentences down and realized, I don't remember what the chapter said. Greedy reading, reading and not understanding. People do this all the time. When I was a pastor in Denver and leaving, this really smart chemical engineer came up to me. I'll never forget this. We're at the going away part. He comes up to me and he says, boy, you've read a lot of books. Have you learned anything? It's really true. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, said, people underline in a book what they will forget. And it's like this in sermons. <clears throat> My critique of so much preaching that's going on in America today is full of Bible, but hardly any application. You can walk out with all kinds of Bible knowledge, but what difference does it make? People automatically don't make application because that might mean they need to change and we don't like to change. It is the job of the preacher to open up the application as a challenge to the congregation and that's not happening. And that's why people can actually go to church and they don't improve. They don't conquer problems in their life. They can go to church for 30 years and they're just as fearful at 50 as they were at 20. Because they didn't hear any application like today. And they go to church and it just goes right over their head. They don't apply what they've heard so they don't get better. And that's why there's so much application in my messages because I want you to conquer things. I want you to get better not stuck in life. But as gently as I can say this, many of you are not doing that. Especially when it comes to fearing. Fear still runs your life. And that you're going to miss out on so many things. There are places you won't go, things you won't do, do risks you won't take. Life is too short to live it afraid. And God commands you, conquer it. Will you? I'm too hard on you. Forget that. Why are we afraid? Because we listen to our fear talk and to other people's fear talk in the news instead of God's word. We're listening to all kinds of people and we're not taking the word of God seriously like I've been reading to you. But fear actually slanders the goodness of God. 
Proverbs 6 verse 2 should be on your mirror. It says we are trapped by the words of our mouth. Think about that. The words you speak keep you stuck in attitudes and behavior. You slander a person, you're really negative and judgmental. You are stuck and it is impossible for you to forgive them because you've just said all these words of judgment. They trap us. So many of us are defeated by the words we speak to our husband or our wife. Seriously, are you aware of how you talk? Your words will make you afraid. So many of us make excuses for our fears, but I want to say firmly, fear is a sin in God's sight. It slanders him. Tamar took risks. She made a plan. She did the things necessary to ask God to make a new ending, a surprise ending to her life. And it was a risk because she could be executed for what she did. Here's my tiny challenge this next week. Start being aware of the things you say, your talk. Is your talk fear talk or faith talk? Is your talk about what could go wrong or what could go right? Just be aware of how you talk because your words are trapping you. Our life cannot get better unless our talk and imagination get better. And that means we must stop fear talk. And that really is the big application of Tamar that I hope we apply to our life today. So be honest. Do you have the habit of negative imagination? Really, do you imagine negative things happening? All I can say is our life will never rise above our words. Never. Fear and negative imagination never produce courage and a better life. Faith is God-anointed imagination. That's faith. God-anointed or we do not have faith in God. If we have a negative imagination, we must receive, we do not have faith in God. Our life will never rise above our words. And so really Tamar's coming to, do you have faith in God? Because faith is not a creed, it's confidence in God that he does surprise endings. <clears throat> Catherine Marshall's a giant of a Christian. Her books sold in the millions because she's so honest about her mistakes and changes that she made. And she wrote this great book called A Closer Walk With You. And let me just quote a sentence. Catherine said, I stopped making excuses for my negativity and fear and started fighting it. That's step number one. I had blocked the, wor the work and power of God in my life. Blocked. I wish I could convince more people that negativity is a miracle killer. Gosh, I wish I could convince you of that. Because our whole culture is making us negative and fearful. It's a miracle killer. 
Tamar had the faith to imagine her life getting better and she did not block God with negativity. And I'm just asking you, could it be that we're blocking God? We are if we're fearful. Secondly, Tamar would tell us, persevere. It's supposed to be hard or else everybody would be doing it. That was Tamar's attitude. She kept her dream despite of all the hard things happening to her. And that's also how two turtles made it to Noah's Ark. They persevered. Everyone around the world knows Starbucks, but without perseverance, it would never have existed. Howard Schultz, the founder, went to over 200 banks looking for the loan he needed. Finally, after 242 no's from banks, a doctor and two friends gave him the 400,000 he needed to start it. Starbucks exists today because he didn't get negative, discouraged, and quit. Perseverance is not easy. But almost everything worthwhile in your life is hard. It's hard or else everybody would be doing it. And third, Tamar would tell us, it's all, it always seems impossible until it happens. You know you're on the right road because everything stopped being easy. That's how you know you're on the right road. Part of Tamar's story is that Judah repented of his attitude. To his credit, he said, she is righteous, I am not. He made no excuses. Because God cannot change our future until we admit there are things about ourselves that need changing. It's the first step. We can't keep doing what we always have done and keep the same attitudes and expect our life to be better. For our future to change, God must change us. Honestly, is there anything in your life that needs to get better for your life to get better? I heard about a woman who was traveling on business and she called home one night to see how things were doing. She asked how her puppy was doing and her husband said, gee, not too good, too good, your poodle died. She said, that's really bad news, but the way you delivered it made it worse. You could have prepared me could have been more sensitive. You could have said something like your poodle is on the roof. And then the next night I called, you could have said, well, your poodle fell off the roof. And the third night you could have said, your poodle died. Then I could have received it because you prepared me. He said, honey, I'm really sorry. I'll try to do better. So she said, well, let's change the subject. She asked, how's my mother doing? There was a pause. And he said, she's on the roof. (laughs) You know, the point of that story is we don't like to hear bad news about ourselves. We just don't like to hear it. 
But hearing the truth about ourselves is the way we get better. Annie Dillard wrote, not everything can be changed that is faced, but nothing can be changed that is not faced. One of my favorite books is There's More to Health Than Not Being Sick by Bruce Larson. And he says this, is it getting easier to say I was wrong? <laughs> That's a tough question. I'm convinced that many of us have an inordinate need to be right. He said the very heart of sin is to play innocent. To put it in another way, let's say I'm in an argument with my wife and I defend myself by saying all I did was, all I said was, those four words are among the most destructive in the English language. They imply I'm innocent and you're a fruitcake. So much of our reluctance, he says, to say I was wrong comes from our insane need to look innocent, to win, and to be right. Is that true? Is it getting easier for you to say I was wrong like Judah did? A lot of people have a hard time admitting that they need to change and that's why their life does not get better. Tamar would say to us this morning that she's proof God is bigger than our messes. She's proof that our life can get better if we give God material. She's proof that our life can get better if we stop blocking God with our excuses and negativity. She's proof. Remember, Insanity is behaving the same way, expecting things to get better. Lord, I pray of all messages you'd help us to apply this today. I know there's a lot of resistance, just a lot of resistance and denial. But I pray that we would be a people who really are applying your word and really are making changes. Help us, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, that was another practical message from Dr. Mike. If you live in our area, why not come to in-person worship at one of our three locations Sunday? Hearing Dr. Mike live is so much more powerful. So we hope you can come. <laughs>